Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, and, well, what may not have, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to complete our discussion of the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition in Chapter 8. That is, last episode, we did the first half of Chapter 8, and we had on such an esteemed, well-spoken guest that we went over our two-hour limit and had to break this into two episodes. And so back with us again is everybody's favorite newbie DM, Enrique. Hey! Hi. You liked me so much, you invited me back for part two. That's right. Absolutely. Why I can't not? believe it. Why would you <laughs> do this? It's so many opinions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they overflowed the banks of We had so, so yeah. many things to say about chapter eight. And, and we still and, more. Still more. We haven't even gotten to the meat of it yet. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't want to... I don't want to I don't want to be a jerk, but you may be looking at three parts here, huh? Yeah, oh, no. I, you know, we could tr- stretch it out for a really long time. <laughs> Brandis and I have been known to do, you know, 45 minutes on one page. So, hey, I mean, you know. Hey, Sam, if you're, if you're considered we could do the 12 Days of Christmas on just the rest of Chapter 8. <laughs> <laughs> we could do so. We could do so, yes. Oh, no. Now, in, in uh, it might be hard though, to schedule. <laughs> in all fairness, though, this is a meaty chapter. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. things to talk about. Yeah, it, it, it feels very much like... You know, a lot of little nooks and crannies to like to poke at because most of the sections aren't very long. They just don't need to be because these are the things we have internet arguments about forever. <laughs> like, <laughs> people have been like, for as long as there's been gaming discussion on the internet, you can still find these discussions on Ian World going back to the founding of Ian World. Yes. Right. And the fact that the 5th edition doesn't matter on most of this. Right. And then next to it, you'll find the most recent post, which is the same topic. Yes. And there's, you know, for all the intervening years as well, of course. Yes. And and you can just kind of keep up with the rhythm, like you're going through Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> it's just call and response at this point, folks. So we ended the last episode, which, by the way, you were just listening to the dulcet tones of my co-host, Brandis Stoddard. Welcome, sir. It's good to have you back as well. Thank you. The last episode, we ended talking about the resolving social interactions section. So is there any uh, last thing you want to say about that, or do we want to move on to the object rules? Uh, so there was some Twitter conversation about this section that um, that I know Enrique was in, Um over the past week, and uh, it, it all kind of comes back to these. These rules are very much a starting point. I don't think there's a, a meaningful expectation that the rule books are going to invoke. Sorry, that the adventures are going to invoke these. Um, what I think you're going to see in adventures is much more kind of here's the DC you need to hit to do the thing, and it's not based on 0, 10, 20. It's based on, you know, 15 is a pretty good number. Let's go with that. And um, my citation here is my adventure in Canada Keep Mysteries. That's what I did. And I assume everyone else did because I haven't checked. <laughs> but th- that's, that seems to be the kind of thing that you see in adventure text, right? Um, here's the DC to do this. 
the adventure creator has decided on it instead of saying, go to chapter eight and use the social interactions rules. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I think it's a fine thing. Um, I think that uh, these rules uh, are some interesting things to think about in the broader context of um, ability check rules, but you can kind of shift into just, it's an ability check. I set a DC based on how hard I thought it should be. And we're good. Like my, how hard I thought it should be may or may not have anything in the wide world to do with what I saw in the monster stat block. And your points about that are still completely valid, Enrique. I'm not taking anything away, anything away from that. Just, hey, I I felt that the NPC had a strong conviction that you were going up against with your persuasion, so I set a high DC. Fine. Like That's not wrong. That's, that's a valid use of the uh, DC setting rules as written for ability checks, the fact that it doesn't use the social interaction rules is irrelevant to me. I I, I think I agree with you. I don't think you're I don't think you're wrong. I think the DC setting rules are so wide in scope that they take into account every all the pillars of the game, right? Right. Um, where I had the issue is, again, and I don't want to turn it into another conversation about that, is just where, where there's specific rules about social interactions is where I think the, the, the wheels come off the cart a little bit. I, I, think, that, I think this section is um, a little underbaked, um, and, and I think that's probably the last thing I really need to say about it. I, I'd like to see this get facelifted. And as you were pointing out, as I covered in uh, Atasha's article that I released at basically the same time, yeah, the the section on um, parlaying with monsters doesn't help. Yeah, I I wonder if if these were more inclusive of stat blocks as pieces of information to be utilized, if if it would. Because, you know, I, I actually agree with you as well, Brandis, about, you know, it doesn't – when you're reading a module or when you're setting something up, you're using the generalized, uh, you know, inst- instructions, so to speak, or guidelines for determining a DC that's appropriate to the situation, right? But and, – and you're not necessarily looking in this – this is uh, unfortunately one of the parts in this chapter that you don't look into and don't return to. But right. I wonder if – if they actually had written something in here to newbie's point about utilizing the stat block for what bits of information it might contain, right? If that creature has a bonus to intimidate, then possibly that's an indicator of what their behavior is going to be like, or if they have a, a bonus to uh, persuasion, that's going to mean something, or if they have a bonus to hide, yeah. right? And, and, and so just being cognizant of the stat block that you're using for a creature because the, what they didn't do was just give us very small simplified stat blocks that don't have a lot of information that only have combat information, right? They gave us monster stat blocks in the monster manual that contain all the stats, 
all the bonus modifiers for those stats. Plus, if they have any bonus to a skill or whatever, they gave us that as well. Plus, all of the other combat special actions. So if they're going to bother to give us that information, why not teach us how to use it? Yeah, like what I find really interesting about this in the in the very broad sense is just um, adventures are a, in, in a lot of ways where the design team teaches you how they think you're going to run the game. Mm-hmm because they're, they're setting up situations and guidance in those situations. And if they aren't saying, hey, go read this chapter to understand what I'm doing here, and they're just structuring something simple, then they probably think you actually do the simple thing. And like, I'm, I'm going to give um, uh, you know, your Tyranny of Dragons series a, a big old pass here, because the book was literally not written when that one was. <laughs> but uh, later books, uh, you know, everything from Princess of the Apocalypse on through um, the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, frankly, which hasn't come out yet. Uh, I'm not a playtester. I, I don't know what's in there. But the text is ultimately the real rubber meets the road of uh, applying the DMG to the action. And... Adventures usually don't use a lot of what's in the, the DMG, and that's kind of okay. The DMG has a lot of, hey, do you, does your game need you to drill down on this? Cool. Do you need some more guidance for creating your own content? Cool. But the DMG is not a guidebook to running published adventures. No, it's not, but it is a guidebook to creating your own adventures. Absolutely. And... This section is not one I would go to for that, and and the proof is that I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder though if the idea is or the the implied or expected uh, series of events is um, person, and I'm not saying this is actually true, but just the, maybe the implied or expected, right? Person who's new to D and D sits down, learns how to play D and D as a player at a table. Next step is they decide they're going to DM. So they decide to learn how to DM and they do that by running published modules and going online and getting all kinds of advice and talking to people and all that. And then eventually they're going to step into a homebrew scenario where they're going to be writing their own adventure. And only then will they need this book. And so I think the assumption is, whether correct or incorrect, the assumption is by the time they get to the point where they need this book, they already kind of know how to play and run, and they already know how to run from adventures. And so they're going to take that experience running those published adventures as the model, so to speak, for how they might frame their own homebrew adventure. As we for sure hashed out with Eugenio in Chapter 5, um everything you need to know about how to run Rhyme of the Frostmaiden is in Rhyme of the Frostmaiden. All of the environmental stuff. And that's good because having fewer books open in your lap at the computer or the gaming table is thumbs up. Absolutely. I can agree with that. 
So we we did also last time uh, just to move on real quickly here. Uh, we talked a little bit about the the role role playing section here with the role playing advice, and I believe all three of us decided that it was uh, pretty spot on, pretty good advice. Yeah, it, it's definitely like uh, good reminders for the experienced and good intros for the the new folks. And then we get to uh, a place where we have not talked about yet, and that is the objects portion of the chapter. I I look at this, and uh, all that happens is the object saving throws tables from first and second ed flash <laughs> before my my mind. <laughs> that that fire, magical fire, acid crushing table. That's what I see. This this is a section that I think. I'd love to meet someone who has this section memorized. I think this is a section that you would have to use the book over and over again every time you wanted to interact with an object in this manner, and it could get tedious very quickly. Well, a GM screen, so. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, true. When I run a game, I don't necessarily have the GM screen up, like to block anything, Uh, but I have it sitting next to me because it's the easy reference table, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I run a game, there's I don't even reference this if I happen to need it, but like my best guess answers are going to be within a couple of points of any of the values in any of the tables here. Um, I mean the the object armor class stuff. I'm I'm honestly going to set it as whatever feels convenient, and you'd be surprised how often fifteen feels convenient. Um. And then the object hit points, like I, if I were making something up off the top of my head, I would have wound up with numbers very, very close to what they use here, I think. So kind of like that, that's not a bad thing. It just means, hey, I've internalized the logic that they use to set these things. I not, I haven't memorized it. But I kind of saw where they were coming from, and I did that. Well, so here's the thing I like. About, I mean, this is such a, a very basic section, but here's the thing I like about it. On the object hit points table, it doesn't just give you a number. It tells you why that number is that number, because it tells you what die roll you would use, right? It gives you the – it's an average of a die roll, and it tells you the die roll. And so I think that – is probably the best part of this section because it tells you uh, how to derive something like that if you are writing your own adventure, right? You don't have to use the average, but now you have an idea of the difference between a resilient barrel and a fragile chest, right? Um, in, In die roll perspective, right? Yeah, for sure. The other thing um, that I that I like is uh, it, it gives the DM permission to declare whatever they want. It literally says you might decide that some damage types are more effective against a particular object or substance than others. Right. And then it gives you examples of how you might change numbers based on that. Right. Um, I really appreciate that. And it does that a couple of times in this section. It t- says you can change these numbers. It doesn't say it in those exact words, but it provides you examples of why you would change it, right? 
and that I think is where the instruction comes in. That's really helpful. Yeah, I, I really have no problems with this section. I mean, it's it is what it is. It's it, it's a good at a glance look at at you know uh, my player says, "Oh, I, can I break this door?" Yeah, sure. Look at the look at the object, and you know it's an easy reference table. There's really not not much to this either way. I I, mm-hmm. I find very little to talk about in regards to this section. What one of the only things that sort of factors into this that isn't specifically here is Siege Monster in the Monster Manual. The rules for Siege Monster are self-contained and don't need to be reprinted here, but it, I think, is a, a useful part of the thinking here. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I think they do, what, double damage to objects? That's how Siege Monster works. The other day I did have a... The other day some... One part here stood out to me, and they actually define what an object is, which I found interesting because um, it came up in a conversation I was having today. So the, the object is defined as, for the purpose of these rules, an object is a discrete inanimate item like a window, door, sword, book, table, chair, or stone, not a building or a vehicle that is composed of many other objects. Oh, nice. That's interesting. So it's got to be one piece. So, for example, a, a, a robot would not be an object for the purpose of these rules because it's composed of many different objects. That's the way I understand it, right? I mean, I have questions about objects like um, a chainmail hauberk, right? It, it, it is a single thing in, in your ordinary way of thinking of it, but it's also made of a great number of objects. Yeah, but it's a dis- it, those objects form a discrete entity because all those objects are basically the same material. Right, and, and it absolutely comes to what would a reasonable person conclude? Correct. A reasonable person would absolutely say a chainmail hauberk is a single object. Right. Well, and what I'm what I'm getting at is, for example, the robot in your example is not even though it all forms to be one entity or one robot. It's not a single discrete item because it's not all the same parts put together. Correct. Whereas a chain chainmail is all the the same material basically. And I would maybe entertain an argument that a a powered down robot was an object, but a powered up robot is for sure a creature. Absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Maybe robot's a bad example, but you you, you follow That's what I'm important. saying. I'm not I'm not trying to nitpick your your example here. I also like it because I, I, I agree with Newbie because the fact that it tells you a building is not an object. It is a building. It needs a different, it has a different requirement in terms of how to affect it. So, so let's talk about that real quick because, and, and I'm going to stray here a little bit, but just pardon my, my indulge me for a bit. The reason the conversation came up was because I was talking about the Leomund's tiny hut spell that specifically calls out creatures and objects are barred from passing through it. So if you use an object as defined by these rules, right? What if I have a, I, I pick up uh, something that's not an object, say my robot, my, my power down robot, can I toss him through the tiny hut? No, because the power down one is an object. It's the active one that's a creature. No, you can't, you can't use the power down robot because it is composed individually of objects. Oh. Its robot nature is a container for its object nature. Good point. There are none of those independent objects will be able to pass through the tiny hut. Right. Right. You're correct. That is that is true. The the example I used on Twitter was actually a lightning bolt and whether or not a lightning bolt was an object or not. That's complicated. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not, not a magical one, a weather, you know, a, a, a natural lightning bolt from, from the sky. Yeah. And what did you decide? I personally decide that it can go through because it is neither a magical effect nor an object. Oh, Leoman's tiny hut. What a bunch of swear words I have for that one. But uh, you know, this this is, opens up a whole this opens up a whole can of worms about how they how I hate Tiny Hut in fifth edition, but whatever. We're not talking about Tiny Hut. <laughs> so, I've got a whole tribality article for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we go off on tangents so often on this show that if you would like to talk about Lehman's Tiny Hut for a half hour, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is and this is how newbie was just part of the show from henceforth <laughs> as was chapter eight from henceforth god i hate that spell <laughs> i feel you buddy so so moving swiftly onward into combat um we, we get rules about tracking initiative and it it shows the you know, three ways of tracking initiative that are not separate approaches to initiative just uh, secret or public or index cards as a management tool. And I think that to a pretty considerable degree, your position on secret public initiative rules just depends on like what you were introduced to the game doing, whether you, whether whoever taught you the game preferred secret or public initiative. Um, I don't know. What do y'all do? Public interesting yeah i hang i hang cards that's the other thing i use my gm screen for is i hang cards folded in half in the right order or i have a nice initiative tracker from litco games they make a like nice little uh long magnetic board and you can stick uh tokens on it that have a magnetized bottom so nice um, but I, I do it in public. I don't see any – in my games, there's no use for hiding it because I would right. like people to – I want it to be f- swift. So right. I don't want to have to like tell them every time, although sometimes that happens anyway depending on the group. But, you know. For right. sure. <laughs> uh, I, I use Secret Initiative in in-person games um, because I'm just writing it down on paper and – I don't have a special tool for displaying it to the players, and I use public initiative for uh, online games because that's how the Roll Twenty Initiative Tracker works. <laughs> so, do you see a difference uh, in the way the players behave? Nope, not not to speak of. So, would you go to public initiative in your home game? If I had a tool that resembled the uh, Roll Twenty Initiative Tracker, yeah. So, if I asked you, but but if I asked you in the game, what's this guy's initiative? You would tell me. Uh, probably. I mean, you find out in the first round anyway. True. Right? And and 5e is not about adjusting initiative. They have not got time for that garbage. So here's here's an interesting thing. So I play a lot of Castles and Crusades, and in Castles and Crusades, you can do initiative uh, one of two ways. You can either do individual initiative, of course, or you can do side initiative, where the side, they designate one of the players to roll for their side, and higher number wins, right? So if they win, they all go, and they go in whatever order they want because in Castles and Crusades, you roll initiative every round. So when I'm doing that, I literally just have the list of PC names, and I ha- and I have check marks for when they've gone in that round. And if once it's the player's turn, I say, okay, which one of you is going first? Okay. Then when, then when they're done, I say, and I read, I literally say, okay, who's going next? And if they don't answer right away, I designate somebody. I say, okay, Garrick, it's your turn. 
what are you doing? And if somebody else jumps in, I don't let, I, I let them do it, but I try to keep the game moving because every turn the initiative changes. So in that case, it's almost both hidden and in the open because they choose really when they go. And if they don't choose fast enough, I just tell them to go. <laughs> sure. So, um, I, I do enjoy, uh, Balsera initiative rules in, uh, uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse RPG. Um, that that's a that's a fun one. Um, but yeah, this is not actually an alternative approach to initiative in any meaningful way. Just no, it's uh, not. Uh, talking about tools for making it happen. Uh, and next we get another toolbox kind of deal of tracking monster hit points. Um, I don't think anything here resembles a rule so much as helping you keep track of what's what. Yeah. It's just very similarly. It's just saying, well, here's some options like, but the options don't change the way the rule work. It's just letting, you know, you have to figure out the way for yourself to best track these things. And I, I, I adore, I adore that there is uh, bloodied by a different name on this page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I find it weird that they left out the, some of the most popular initiative tracking methods that you see online, like for example, the hanging uh, cards on the DM screen. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, sort of- that's a form of visible list. They, they talk about using magnets um, for whiteboards, uh, which I have definitely seen done. Yeah. There's also the, another one I've seen is writing it right on the battle mat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. That, that happens a lot, especially I, I've seen that a lot at conventions and stuff. Again, another section where there's really not much to it, you know? It's, yeah. In tracking hit points, um, is, they mention uh, don't ever feel as though you need to reveal exact hit points, but if a monster is below half its maximum, it's fair to say it uh, has visible wounds and appears beaten down. Excellent. Very good. If you don't want to say the word bloodied, or if you <laughs> if you did not play fourth edition, so you didn't learn what. See, the thing is, but if say, you're somehow if, contractually if, obligated not to use the word bloodied. No, no, but well, no, because the thing is, but bloodied. bloodied bloodied means a very specific thing. It means up below half, but maybe they're not actually below half. And if you're playing with a bunch of fourth edition players and you say bloodied, they think below half. No, but they say, but they say that, and they say it here. All right. Uh, the sentence specifically says, "If a monster is below half its hit point maximum." Like I know, but I, I but I think so, well. So let me. So there's a nuance here, right? See, I think that what they're saying is, "Be as vague as possible." Sure. And so their implication is, "Be as vague as possible." And what I'm saying is, the reason they don't use the term "bloodied" that they chose an alternate phrase is because "bloodied" does have a very specific meaning. Sure. That's fair. You know, when this was written, you know, they didn't know if it was going to blow up as big as it has. So there was there would be no way for them to know that it's going to have so many new players that, I mean, I don't know what the percentage of, of players that know what bloodied means. So, yeah. But I, I'm just saying it has a very specific meaning and that conjures different things in the heads of a player who has a connection to that specific word. So I find it it's interesting that they didn't use that word. 
Well, no, look, here's, I have it in front of me here. Here's what it says. It says, you can describe a monster taken to half its hit points as bloodied, giving the players a sense of progress in a fight against a tough opponent and helping them judge when to use their most powerful spells and abilities. So they're kind of, I mean, they're kind of saying it. Now, bloodied isn't capitalized, right? So it's not like an actual condition or a, or a, or a rules key, a keyword. It's kind of like a flavor. It's treated more as flavor than as a right, mechanic. But, but that's exactly what I'm saying is that yeah. they provide three different ways to say that. They say you can say it has visible wounds. You could say right. it appears beaten down or you could just use the word bloodied. Yeah, like yeah. That's, yeah, that's my point is that yeah. they're trying to make it more vague. Oh, yeah. yeah. I actually missed it. It was in that paragraph because I stopped. Where it was <laughs> you stopped reading after that sentence. Shut up, you. <laughs> it, 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 it would have been. It, it would be nice. It would be nice if they ever decided to take a monster and give it a. Once this monster hits half its hit points, this can happen. Oh, oh well, mm-hmm. so so they they do that, except that they're solving the fact that tracking the halfway mark is annoying, and blowing past the halfway mark and not realizing it is annoying. That's what mythic monsters in Theros are. Mm-hmm. That's that's why they. We've only seen them there. It, well, until um, yeah, they're coming until out. They come out in Fizzbonds, yeah. right? Because I'm pretty sure James Wyatt said that's a thing, um, and that's super exciting. Um, I really like that we're getting more into bosses have phases, but way off way off target. Oh my god, way off track. <laughs> well, you know, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden or, or spoilers. Okay, right, but yeah. Oral has three forms. And the way you get her to switch forms is you reduce her by a certain number of hit points. But the way they present that isn't, oh, when she hits this many hit points down, she does this. They present it as she takes this form. When you destroy that form, she suddenly immediately, without any break, takes this form. Right. And, and she then, sheds conditions, right. which is also important. And so, so that actually made her a little bit more resilient than if it just was – some sort of ability that activated when she hit a certain hit point threshold. Wow. She's, she's a very powerful mid adventure boss. She's, uh, that's a topic for a different <laughs> show. That is a topic I know, for, being, uh, for a different show. I am being, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. If you fight her in her home, she should be the most formidable creature that the players have met by far until then including the another spoiler dragon that they fight right before that okay if you meet her in her home and the dm is running all of her lair actions and the requirements of her island and all that stuff plus the white rock she would be difficult but Mm -hmm. the problem is it's a lot to keep track of and it's not as easy as you know anyway so let's move on fifth level character shouldn't be fighting a God. Right. Well, and that, but that's another separate conversation, right? That is yeah. an aesthetic yeah. ridiculousness conversation. But anyway, let's move on. Right. So then we get to <laughs> um, using and tracking conditions. They give a little tiny bit here on that. Yep. And keeping track of all the, all the conditions you're getting thrown around can be a lot. Um, certainly in, in fourth edition, it could be awfully cumbersome because 
in addition to all the conditions and the marks and the combat advantage, you could also just have um, like one-off penalties or, or bonuses from this or that power that would just sit on the creature or until used by by someone for whatever purpose. But this also wants to help players remember their conditions uh, so that they don't, eh, you know, maybe conveniently forget. Yeah, because players have incentive to forget or overlook campaign conditions. Oof. <laughs> um, and, and you know, index cards or post-it notes are uh, a perfectly good approach in for, for in-person games, um, for online games. And goodness, it's strange how they didn't predict a global pandemic in 2014. Um, <laughs> it shows what their what de- what what their diviners could accomplish. Um, I think it's interesting that they say uh, you can also apply conditions on the fly. They're meant to be intuitive for you to do so. And I think that when you compare conditions in 5th edition to conditions in 4th edition and keeping track of them and everything, and conditions in 3rd edition and keeping track of them and all the feat bonuses and all that stuff, and conditions in something like Pathfinder 2, which has like 12 bazillion conditions. Like, yes, compared to those, the 5th edition conditions are intuitive. Mm -hmm. But I would not go so far as to say that the conditions and what they cause is actually intuitive for a new player. Uh, I don't I don't think that their effects are intrinsically intuitive. I think that you just need to like get used to saying, uh, "Hey, like your character can't see anything. Blinded applies. Uh, you've been knocked down. Prone applies, or, or whatever. Like the, the list is is the list, and it certainly is a lot better than having you know your your shaken, frightened, terrified, whatever the the list of frightened steps is in third. Oh, act. sure. Yeah, sure. For just, what does that do again? I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but the, but the thing is, okay, so yeah, they're easy and intuitive to apply. Okay. You can't see, so you suffer from the blinded condition or right. you've been and, knocked and down, so you, you suffer from effect. prone. Right. And then the player says, well, bl- blinded, what does that mean? And you have to look up that it gives you a negative five to hit or that you take disadvantage sure. on all, you know, sensory type Skill checks sure, based sure, on sight, right? But I didn't expect it to be so intuitive that I instantly recalled all the effects. I just expect it to be intuitive to initially apply. It doesn't require a special rules hook to apply. Sure. I'm just say- saying the difference between those is a vast cavern, is sure. all I'm saying. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I find the frightening condition interesting. Okay. Because it's the only condition that removes player agency and tells the player how the character feels. Uh, sort of. I mean, charmed. Because all the all the forms of charmed carry an additional rider of some kind. Charmed and yeah, like because charmed person carries a one rider for the charmed condition, and True. the crown of madness carries a different rider, and dominate person carries a different rider. Um, and, and- and then Charmed gives the character... So check out the Charmed condition. 
It says the charmer has advantage on any ability check to interact socially with the creature. Mm -hmm. So if a Medusa charms your PC and I want to interact socially as the DM, the P, the, 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 the Medusa with your, with your PC, theoretically I have advantage on that check. Well, sure. Now, what does that mean? I, I'm not sure. Well, uh, I think that we go back to the social rules. I have my own like personal answer to that, uh, which is not going to be uh, rigorously supported in rules, but it is to say that, okay, so once the charmed condition is actually in play, the uh, the adage that uh, a persuasion check is not mind control is no longer applicable because actual mind control is in the offing. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the the charmed character has a certain amount of further resistance based on, hey, that persuasion check could be terrible, right? I, I'm going to interpret what you say in a favorable way. That's what the charmed person spell contains. But if both of, if you roll persuasion with advantage and you, you roll everything below a five, well, I mean, probably nothing happens. So it's so there's still another fairly light failure chance possible there. But having said that, I know that the whole existence of charm, existence of charm person uh, as a way to strongly thumb the scales of someone else's uh, opinion and actions makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. So you know, I don't I don't know what to say to that. I just it it, it leans into rules that are, as we said earlier, half baked. Yeah, um, th- th- there's. Just a lot of uh, personal viewpoint and uh, what's the definition of reasonable exactly right. that has to come up there. And and do you see? Let me ask you. Let me ask you both a question. Do you see a difference between intimidation, being feeling intimidated or scared, um, and frightened by the frightened condition? Uh, is one of the is, is is I guess what I'm saying is 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 this a magical fright that's causing the PC to run and and, and well, well the creature can't willingly move closer to the, how do you how do you see this? So my technical answer there is that uh, frightened is definitely a step up from the. This thing intimidated that is not a condition. And it doesn't have to be magic. Uh, For example, the Berserker Barbarian's 10th level feature, which applies the frightened condition um, and does not, to my recollection, use a charisma intimidation check in any way. Uh, But it isn't magic. I don't believe it says the magical ability. I'm not checking right now. I'm just going off of memory. So if I'm wrong, you know, that's going to be really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but um, so, like my my feeling is that um, there there is some kind of threshold between yes, I'm intimidated, and no, I can't step toward that thing. You, you know what I'm saying? So so newbie, here, let me tell you why I liked the frightened condition. The way the condition is written in fifth edition, it says. A frightened creature has disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls while the source of its fear is within line of sight. That means the source has to be visible to the 
frightened thing, right? And the creature can't willingly move closer to the source of its fear. So here's why I like that. Because in nature, often there are two responses to a, a creature, an animal, that is afraid. Okay? An intimidated animal that is afraid. Now, I'm not talking about a mama bear defending her cubs, but a, a mouse that has detected the presence of a snake or a hawk in the area is either going to A, freeze and try to pretend like it doesn't exist and not move so that it doesn't get seen, or B, it's going to run like hell to try to get to its burrow Hmm. so that it cannot get killed, right? And that's what a frightened creature does. The fright response is either freeze or run away. And I like that they've incorporated this in here. And it does not say in this condition that the source has to be magical or that the source has to be a creature, right? That A living entity, right? It doesn't designate either one of those as a necessity for the frightened condition to apply. For some creatures, say a dragon, that's not a magical fright. You're just freaking scared of that big dragon that could kill you in one bite. So how do you feel about using the frightened condition as a result of a, um, a check against a situation or a, or, or, or a social um, situation? I regard it as potentially appropriate, but not universally appropriate, is my, feel about that, my feeling about that. I think that uh, it has to stay a DM call, and this is, the, this is a payoff moment of uh, – D&D being run by uh, a human intellect rather than a machine. It, um, like it, in, a, uh, in a social situation where you know, someone is threatening you very indirectly, they're, they're making threats about like hurting your, maybe it's like your character's bond or hurting you know, your, your off-screen assets or, or whatever. Like that's still intimidation, but it isn't. Uh, I am so frightened that I can't go punch that thing. Hmm. Right. That that's not the shape of that intimidation. Uh, the thing that's stopping them from going and punching that thing is the social constraint against violence, because you're, you're going to lose something else if you initiate violence in that in that moment. I mean, intimidation is a weird, you know. Uh, intimidation in the game doesn't necessarily mimic intimidation in the real world, right? Or the way that it mimics intimidation in the real world is limited. And I don't equate frightened and intimidated as being the same thing. But I think that I agree with Brandis in, in the, with respect to the fact that the DM is adjudicating the situation. So if you know, it kind of depends. Look, if my PC is a 10th level PC and they are trying to be intimidated by a devil, like a full-on, you know, high-power devil, it's likely that they're going to be intimidated, but that intimidation doesn't stop them from perhaps signing a contract or making a deal. They just might not be able to negotiate to the best of their ability because they're intimidated and the devil is socially feeding off of the fact that it knows it intimidated that PC, right? It's not, it's not the same as frightened 
and it's definitely not the same as Charmed, right? So th- those three, th- there's a reason for those three things being different. And, and another part of my thinking here is just that I have yet to see uh, social conflict rules that were really genuinely better than just following the natural course of the conversation most of the time. Uh, I'm carving out an exception for helping shy players play charismatic characters. Uh, I'm not really talking about that, um, but relying on highly technical rules and dice to make a social scene go is not my preference, and I've never seen anything to talk me out of that position. You know, the the other aspect of this, too, just to compare, you know, for me, frightened in the game is truly, truly frightened. The individual is having a nervous system response that has disabled them in some way, right? They, they are unable to move where they might want to because they cannot move closer to the source of their fear and they, uh, you know, they may not be able to move away because of where their position is, right? So if you get them in a spot where they ha- would have to move closer to the creature to then move farther away, they can't move, right? So, so they are disabled now. They are, they are unable to do certain things. And that is a particular nervous system response, okay? Whereas intimidation, I have been in, look, uh, as an academic, when I was first going to grad school, I was highly intimidated by some of the people that I was meeting and that I had to work with and deal with. Uh, But that didn't stop me from doing a good job. Uh, Intimidation in that context made it so that I was trying to impress them. So I tried to do an even better job maybe than if I wasn't intimidated, right? Because if you're intimidated by someone, uh, the you want to please them, not displease them, right? And right. so that's a very different thing from being frightened. I wasn't scared of these people by any means. I was more, you know, they're intimidating. Some some of these people were extremely intimidating, and w- I had to grow out of being intimidated by them as a person, right? And so that's that's con- context dependent, right? Whereas The frightened response is also context-dependent, technically speaking, but it's a nervous system response that affects the motor portion of the person's abilities, right? That calls to mind for me a a kind of intimidation where the person doing the intimidating is actively trying not to do it and and fails to not intimidate. And and that's celebrities greeting people. Right. Like – there I am at uh, Worldcon one year, uh, meeting the amazing uh, Neil Gaiman, and I, I squeak something out and shake his hand and flee in terror, <laughs> flee in mortal terror, the likes of which few dragons can inspire. <laughs> and he is the nicest, friendliest guy, and it's not his fault at all. But yeah, there you go. I I snuck my wife into a. Uh, work situation I was in where I was interacting with a uh, famous actor who plays a big name superhero that my wife happens to be a super fan of the actor. So I snuck her in as a producer, quote unquote, and she was going to be the the green room producer for this particular thing. Uh, I only did that so she could meet the person and, and, you know, shake his hand and and stare into his beautiful eyes and, (laughs) and, 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 and be happy that evening. Right. 
All she had to say was, can I get you some water? Can I get you something to drink? She walked up to him and froze. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> she had no idea what to say. She just froze in place. She 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 completely she went catatonic because she was intimidated. <laughs> oh, poor thing. Yeah, I had to walk her. I, I said, "Excuse me." I took her out of the out of the green room. I'm like, "What are you doing? You froze." <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> so I can understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in that case, now your now that intimidation was very similar to the frightened condition in fifth edition. But the thing is, your wife wasn't frightened, right? This, right. In that way, right? Your wife was having a, a social experience, right? That if, that was a nervous system response, but it wasn't exactly fright. It was not. Yeah, it was not fright. So, I mean, you know, and yeah, these things are really hard to model, right? And I agree with you that the, the social interaction rules don't help, right? I just think there's a, there's a weird way how all these things kind of interact with each other. And, and they do put a lot of uh, expectation and hope that the DM will, will abdicate and take care of these things without needing a rule in a book to, to do so. Yep, I, I agree with that. And and all I'm saying is that maybe, you know, for the first time you open this book and, and, and decide, okay, I want to be a DM, what do I do? There may be some places where there's not enough information to, to help you. Yeah, no argument. And so I think, you know, one of the conclusions that we have started coming to with this book is this book isn't teaching you how to be a DM. It's not. That's what everybody wants it to be. That's what everybody thinks it's supposed to be. But it's not doing that. What it's doing is presenting ideas and providing tools for you to integrate and work with and put into your game and see if you can mold them into something that feels right at the table. But the thing is, when something, knowing when something feels right or doing something to make it feel right at the table, that is so much more an art than a science. And that's not what this book is trying to teach. That's not the part of DMing this book is trying to teach. This book is trying to teach the science of DMing, right? It's a big reference book with a bunch of optional rules and a bunch of descriptions and definitions and, and interesting tidbits. But it, in, in almost no place in here does it tell you, here's how to do this at the table. Correct. And that's not, I mean, that sounds like I'm uh, railing against the book. I, that's not a... No, I, think, I think it's a very balanced way to say what's here. Yeah, I mean, but I, what I'm saying is it's not a treatise against this book. I'm not saying this book is worthless because of that. All I'm saying is the focus of the book is one thing. And the way that a, a lot of fans, I think, and a lot of DMs, and, including myself at some points in time, when we think about what a DM's guide is supposed to be, we somehow have this idea that it's supposed to teach us how to DM. And that's exactly not what any Dungeon Master's Guide does. I, I think the book is at the point and the game is at the point where at a very meta level, it knows that it does not exist in a vacuum mm-hmm. and knows that a lot of these gaps will be filled elsewhere. And there are easily accessible uh, places to go to and fill those gaps. And the book, no, the book is self-aware in that regard, I believe. Uh, and the game in general is self-aware in that regard. Yeah, but that, that's where uh, Colin's points about the, the questions he's receiving from uh, his 
you know, junior colleagues at work who are just getting into D and D because he has way more access to first time D and D fans than, than I have. Um, he's getting questions that are very much about, you know, using specific tables in, in this book. And it, the whole frame of the question wouldn't have occurred to me. Right. Uh, because uh, uh, like you have been doing this since forever, um, though not since three forevers like Sam. <laughs> um, and, and so what does it mean to make things uh, easily accessible for new players is one of those big questions. Um, yeah. And it also, that's also really context dependent. For example, my two, new players, which, I mean, they've been playing for three years now with me, so I don't know if you call that new. I still call them new players sure, because they're teenagers and they, in fact, do not have access to a lot of the tools that, that Newbie is talking about that are, are sort of taken as, well, there's all these other resources around that people are going to use. They don't actually have access to most of those. And so their experience of learning how to do things is very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, back to the book. Back to the book. <laughs> Let's see if we can get uh, halfway through what remains of this chapter. So there's a, a, a damage part there. So it's 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 going to talk now about monsters. It gives us a nice half page, the, the artwork that shows the difference between the different size categories uh, of creatures. And then on the next page, there's a half page about what those size categories look on a square grid or a hex uh, grid, hex map. Um, and it talks now about damage. So what do you think about this uh, critical hit improvising damage and, and uh, area of effect sections here are really about how you figure out damage? Critical hits is uh, flattening out some of the variability of dice, pretty inoffensive. Um, you know, I know that a lot of people uh, get very upset about, like, I rolled a crit and then all my dice came up ones. So, <laughs> and the, like, this is not actually a terrible approach for everyone, uh, not just monsters. But monsters do have a pretty good uh, frequency of large dice pools. So, having to pull together, um, like 8d10 or whatever can be a pain in the butt and ha having to find only 4d10 is a little bit of a help. Um, the improvising damage sections, while I, I praise these up one side and down the other, um, when we saw this for, for traps earlier, and so I feel the same way about it now, mm -hmm. kind of contextualizing uh, the die pool sizes for damage um, with... So here's some general guidance for what that might be. Uh, it's, that's pretty nice to have. Struck by lightning is a 2d10? Uh, well, it, it's 2d10 lightning rather than, you know, 8d6 lightning for reasons. Who knows? Like, <laughs> it's not a call lightning, I don't think. No, no. Uh, and it's not a lightning bolt, so... Eh? So do either of you use um, average damage for your creatures? I do not. No. I rule. Do you use average HP? Yes. Um, yes and no. I, I do. I did in the lower levels. I find that as my players go up in level, I need to 
beef up those monsters. Otherwise, they're mm. they're not a challenge. Yes, I, I always find that interesting because um, I never do average damage. I always roll, and I never do average HP. I roll unless it's like kind of a boss monster, and then I just give them maximum. And, and, and also, since I'm using roll 20, it's very easy for me that if I have, you know, four orcs, mm-hmm. not every single orc has the same amount of hit points. Right. Um, you know, one orc could come in a little weaker. Maybe he's tired. Another orc could come in fully, full hit points because he's he's been training and he's got a, a great rest, you know, the night before. Mm-hmm. Maybe another guy's a little exhausted. So he's got, you know, I, I try to play with the hit points only so that my players don't become familiar or or to catch them off guard. Right. Because they love to track the hit points damage that they've been doing. So I, I try to play with them a little bit and 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 yeah and my players don't do that yeah mine do so i don't feel any any pressure to uh oh mine to, to vary mine it do. up like i know that i would not tell a significant story with anything less than quite a large variation in hit points yeah yeah my my players all almost almost all of them in in all the games i run they know what the or they're paying attention. If they don't know it offhand, they're paying attention to it, right? Um, but I, I change it up. I always roll so that they don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I always find that interesting. And it's it's kind of apropos here because the improvising damage, you know, yeah, maybe the lightning could maybe move up. But, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're bad damage. I, I, it's, a, it's a good enough chart. Um, for quick damage, I mean, this is these aren't meant to be game ending or, or life ending, mm-hmm. you know, situations. Anyways, I, at least I would hope that you know nobody's killing a PC because he got struck by lightning on a bad roll, you know, or stumbled into a fire pit. Killing yeah. them by dropping a flying fortress on them is pretty much fine, I have to say. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's but that, certainly it, a memorable death with lots of property damage. <laughs> yeah, I like the uh, the damage severity uh, and and level table in here for the same reason that I like the object uh, hit points table in that it kind of gives you the three categories of if you give a creature or effect the ability to do this much damage, it's going to be dangerous, deadly, or barely a setback in general to this group of people based on level. Like I, I like that kind of guidance because it has a lot of wiggle room. It's not really, uh, hard and fast, right? But uh, it's just letting a new DM know, look, if your character's third level and you've got something that does 4d10 damage coming up against them, it's going to one-shot one of them. Yeah. I mean, it's also telling you that a character of 11th level, uh, you shouldn't bother st- getting hit by lightning or stumbling into a fire pit because it's not even a setback for them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's a fair point. Yep. So then we move into adjudicating areas of effect with uh, some rules for uh, AOEs when you are using theater of the mind play. It's your targets and areas of effect table. So this section is assuming that the default way people play the game is theater of the mind. And it presents this as a way to educate mobs, uh, uh, targets, sorry. And then later on it, presents using grid as a <laughs> as an option 
And I feel like this is completely disingenuous because I really feel that everybody plays on a grid. I want to disagree with you because it says if. The second sentence in the adjudicating areas effect says, if you're not using miniatures or another visual aid, it can sometimes be difficult to determine who's in an area of effect and who isn't. It's telling you why it's giving you this information. I don't think the assumption is that you are or are not. I don't think these are, I don't think that the headers here are organized in terms of how you're most likely to be doing it moving toward less likely. Um, I, I don't claim to know how they did organize them. Um, alphabetically, isn't it? Uh, we, we can take that one off the list. Um, but it, it sort of feels like they just finished one idea and then introduced the next idea with a new header and it happened in the order it happened in. I don't know. I think they're trying to get a flow. I mean, they go from talking about conditions to damage, and then they go to improvise, or, you know, max damage and crits, and then they go to improvise damage. Then they go to, okay, something else damage related. Well, how do you know who even gets damaged by an area of effect? Sure. And then they go to mobs. How do you know how much damage a mob can do? And then it switches over to the miniatures stuff. So I agree that I could see newbie where why you why you first thought was that it was a little bit disingenuous because of the the closeness of these two sections and and the fact that there is actually a grid on the page where it talks about if you're not using a grid. But um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I it's, I mean I have my own thoughts about the organization of some of these chapters. So I do like I, I do like that there's a rule here that says and this rule should be in bold. Uh, that says the easiest way to address such uncertainty is to go with your gut and make a call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that really, you know, the, the, the trick to that rule is that your table agrees to the fact that you're going to go with your gut and make a call and they better accept it. Yeah. And like, I think that like the one underpinning thing that this book can't do and it's still the most important thing is teach you how to win the trust of your players. Yeah. To, to just trust your calls to be fair and not yeah. kind of, well, I don't really want that guy to get hit with that burning hand, so I'm just going gonna- to... I, I will say this. Everyone on every show, every stream that I see coming out of Wizards of the Coast is playing theater of the mind. They are not playing on a grid. Uh, fair enough. That seems to be the preferred way... Um, Certainly Watsy internally, I think, you know, even if you, when you look at Chris Perkins, last time I saw him run something, I believe was the Stranger Things cast. That was all theater of the mind. All these, the, the Waterdeep show is all theater of the mind. Yeah. Like the, the things I have seen uh, that are specifically Watsy's have been relatively little of what they've done. And so I don't want to want to overstate my, my exposure here, but it seems like they're mostly doing one shots and mostly like lower level one shots where even the pressure to use a grid is I think considerably reduced uh, like in counterpoint to what the default is while critical role does everything on a grid. So that's certainly what the default assumption is for a lot of new people you know what i mean yes but the i can't remember sam you you maybe you remember or even you brandis when, when the starter kit box came out the um i forgot the name of the adventure that was lost minds of fandelver 
the Fandelver, that the assumption there was not miniatures. I don't even think it mentions miniatures in that product. I uh, I don't have it here with me, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't even think that product mentions a grid at all in any capacity. And, and maybe the audience... Well, I mean, it, it has maps with grids on it, though. Don't the maps have grids? Maybe the audience can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that the book tells you to use those maps and miniatures. And, and, and my other point would be, I wish this section of the book included better guidance on how to run theater of the mind. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I think that I wish the, the headers uh, were actually broken up specifically to theater of the mind using miniatures as th- those are your two big headers. Okay, go. Um, yeah, because when you're running the game, there are two different ways to run the game. You can run Theater of the Mind or Miniatures, and they are two very different experiences for both the DM and the players. Yeah, I. but okay, so remember there's some – there's a reason why <laughs> – so, so, okay, so they do mention – okay, so the, the look, remember there's a lot of like – rhetoric around how bad fourth edition was okay and one of the things that they wanted to do was assure players that are coming back into fifth edition that hated fourth edition were not going to be worried about it being a tactical miniatures game so i think with lost mine of fandelver with the beginner box the starter set that they purposefully made it so that it was absolutely not needed. But when you look at the book, it says uh, that there is, the, the maps have a grid on them and there, it talks about scale. It talks about, you know, it, it, it does say the maps are for the DM's eyes only, right? But Are you looking at the Fandelver right now? Yeah. Oh, okay. But there is a player's version of the map, right, that you can use. And I think when um, Greg Bilsland... Right after Fedition came out, they did like the 24-hour like uh, uh, charity stream thing, and Greg Bilsland ran the Lost Mine of Fandelver, and he ran it with a map and tokens for the players to see. So I, I, I think that there were reasons why they don't make it front and center in in that product, but I don't. I'm not sure I agree with your assertion that 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 their entire assumption about fifth edition 100% is that there won't be a grid and that that's the that's considered the optional variant i'm not sure i mean i i don't know i wasn't in the room when they were doing it but i i know a lot of people that use a grid i mean when you look at the rise of things like roll 20 so let me ask you this do you think that if there was no pandemic and if people were mostly gaming face to face they would be doing it gridless i mean that's a that's kind of a that, that's kind of a weird question because there's group. I mean, that depends on the preference of the group. If I am reading, if I am reading for the first time, Lost Mine of Fandelver, and I've never played D anD D before, mm-hmm. and I open this book and I see this section that says Adventure Maps, and it says, and it says, this is for the DM's eyes only. It says uh, maps that appear in this adventure for the DM's eyes only. A map not only shows an adventure location in its entirety, but also shows secret doors hidden traps, and other elements the players aren't meant to see, hence the need for secrecy. Maps are best used to show multi-room layers and other locations that have many places to explore. Therefore, not every location needs a map, 
And when the players arrive at a location marked on a map, you can either rely on a verbal description to give them a clear mental picture of the location, or you can draw what they see on a separate piece of graph paper, copying what's on your map, omitting details as appropriate. I personally believe that the assumption is theater of the mind. And the map drawing helps you visualize things, but it's not meant to be a tactical uh, experience. That's just what I get out of it. I may be completely wrong. You may disagree with me. I'm just, my reading of this says this product is being presented as a theater of the mind product. Oh, and and there's a very real piece of that that is just, uh, they don't want to sit down and explain how to use dice or beads or whatever as your place markers and the box doesn't include miniatures or a map or, or a battle map like that, that that isn't part of it so in that regard you're kind of inherently correct to me right and as as i said i think that was also part of the marketing because or part of the decision for marketing because number one even if the starter sets a loss leader, they don't want it to be that much of a loss leader, right? They don't want to put battle mats and tokens and all kinds of stuff in there and then have to have a whole extra book for how to use battle mats and tokens because they don't have that, right? Like the, the DM's guide doesn't say how to use. So it, yes, in, the, in that respect, you're right. But I also think that it was partly because they were trying to convince people that you don't need a map and miniatures to play this. It's not fourth edition. It's not going to be reliant and expected that you have a map and miniatures. So I guess the thing is like, I, I, I kind of am disagreeing with you, but I understand where you're coming from. But I think that a lot of the early stuff that came out specifically hewed away from gridded combat battle maps and tokens and miniatures because they didn't want it to be thought, oh, it's just... 4e light right it's just a retread of fourth edition and you know and now that it's so big though i'm curious you know you're because your assertion when you started this with was that all the people at wizards of the coast are playing without a map yes are you are you also saying that that's probably what most people at home are doing i'm not assuming that i can't i, don't, I wouldn't know i only know what i know and, and what I know is that when I look at Watsi folks play the game, they don't play with a map. I don't consider critical Watsi folks. What critical role does is critical sure, role. Sure. Critical role is definitely not Watsi folks. Yeah. But when I see Watsi folks run D&D, they are running D&D, theater of the mind. Right. And uh, all I'm saying about that is that it's so often a one-shot that the use of time and the flow of action is actually quite different from what is uh what is experienced at the table but 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 even the campaigns they sponsor and that sit in the official watsi twitch channel sure those things are, are theater of the mind campaigns they're not they're, they're not tactical oh, fair, fair enough i have not watched any of them i mean not not none but none of the longer campaigns i watched um dice camera action was that theater of the mind or was that that was very theater of the mind but so that's why i asked if you what your opinion was on if you, if the pandemic had not happened and people weren't forced to sequester themselves away. Right. I I think the pandemic forced people onto virtual tables. Right. So I think virtual tabletops got a lot of use during the pandemic because people couldn't leave their houses. So 
that made it so that maps and everything are much more enticing, right? Because some players have a hard time not having a map. They, they're not good with the spatial relationships. It's a lot more difficult, depending. I mean, I'm not speaking for everybody, of course, but I know I have some players that are, they have a really hard time if I don't put a map up there. My players expect maps and they expect tactical combat. Uh, my players are also 50 years old and, and they've been doing this for a long time and, and that's what they know. Um, from fourth and third and, and some second, the ones that played first edition played theater of the mind, but I guess they moved away from that. If I had my, if I had my, my choice with my group currently, I would play theater of the mind. They don't want me to, so I don't do it. With every ounce of love for theater of the mind discourse, we need to get through this chapter, my my friends. Right. So, okay. So let's, let's this only on. tells me that I'm a good guest. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm going to toot my horn here. Okay. Do you have anything to say then? Cause your preference is theater of the mind. Do you have anything to say about their using miniatures and tactical maps section here? I n- no. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much what I know. I mean, there's nothing new there for me. I, I, I do want to have us not skip over handling mobs uh, just because I love the mob attack table. It is functionally a Thaco table. Is it? Because you have to calculate the DC roll needed to hit. So in that regard, you have to do a Thaco-style calculation hmm. to determine how many creatures hit. And that makes me just laugh so hard, I can't stand it. <laughs> um, but we can move on. I just had to point that out. So what you're saying, Brandis, is 5th edition brought Thaco back. Um. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's really trying to like get that that two E market share back. That's what it's doing. That's that was obviously the core design principle was handling mobs, which is why they put it on uh, page two fifty of the DMG. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, using miniatures, um, I, I think that this is all pretty functional stuff. We don't use flanking because no, I don't like the Congo line of death and. I'm not eager to see it return. I don't use flanking either. There's been a lot of discussion about flanking in Twitter lately, in, in part because I wrote a thing on house rules, but also it's just happening. Um, there's a section here I, I, I want to talk about real quick, and, and only because I, I've tried it. I'm terrible at it. I'm not good at it, and I want to know how you do it. Uh, running chases. Um, to me, I always feel like when I try this, it's just a very clunky experience for me and the players. And I don't, I don't know if it's because of me or because of the rules or a combination of both. How do you, how do you guys feel about chases? Uh, I have not used uh, these formal chase rules before that I can recall. Um, the times I've had uh, urban chases before, uh, there was a monk in the party. And so it was not so much a chase. Mm. as, uh, well, that guy's way over there. He's really booking it and getting away. Mm, I think he's not. Is that is that okay? What if he's not? Is pretty much what mm. the player said to me because... Because yeah, the monk. Because monk. He's yeah. playing a speedster and, like, I don't know, he tapped into the speed force or whatever and suddenly he was there uh, murdering the guy with a stun. Um, and, and, like, that was fine. I mean, I have the same problem, um, but I don't. I don't use these chase rules. I use 
my own homebrewed kind of way to do a chase. If there needs to be a chase and there's no monk in the party, uh, I do different things. I like the content that's here okay. Though I, I say that not having used it, so I, I f- I'm only going on, hey, I feel like it would be okay. Um, but what's interesting to me is that it is a skill challenge in uh, in fifth. Like what's here is supposed to be a skill challenge just without the uh, you have to succeed this many times before you fail this many times uh, mm-hmm. superstructure. It's instead uh, you have to follow the narrative to see how many times you have to succeed before it's it's done, right? And it's a it's interesting that it leans so hard on saving throws to accomplish your goals. So it's a mix of saving throws and skill checks. Uh, the best part of this section is the complications tables. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure, for sure. That that's the interest, right? The it, until you're rolling on a complications table and getting a result or not, then it doesn't feel like a lot has happened. It's sort of, yep, you book it down the road. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, something actually happens. Cool, 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 cool. That's good. Um, and it, there's something really adjacent to layer actions here that I like, but it's it's very much about making the player engage with the environment. Uh, the only thing that maybe I wish could be a little more solidified is that the environment isn't there until it's rolled on the table, unlike in layer actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, what is it? Uh, the maze of barrels crates or similar obstacles uh, isn't in the road until someone rolls a four. Well, see, that's why I say I use my own system because I pre-roll. Oh, sure. That, that's pretty good. And I set up, Right, and there's some uh, like a flow chart with some branching points so that they might not hit every single complication, yeah. right? And and I think that I would probably really enjoy seeing a uh, a skill challenge structure that took that angle of okay, so if you have a skill challenge that you don't anticipate in a session, uh, just take sixty seconds to roll dice in this order. Here's what happens kind of thing. So to, to help you generate it very quickly, but it's not actually generated by the player like doing the thing. You know? It's like in a video game, you want the processor to render the scene before you're actually in it. Yeah. Um, so, siege equipment. So siege equipment. The siege equipment stuff is fine. Um, the, the standard immunities to poison and psychic are, uh, are, are good here. I don't I looked for them a bit when we were going through objects. Um, I don't remember if it showed... Um, oh, yeah. Objects are immune to poison and psychic. Right. Good. That is in there. It's just really easy to miss in, in that section. Mm-hmm. Here, it's a lot easier to see because it's presented more like a step block. Um, and so these are all great. And who hasn't wanted to um, shoot PCs with, with ballistas at times? Um, what I wish this had was little images. Oh, sure. Because um, honestly, hitting a single person with a trebuchet is hard. <laughs> They're not right, but that. I just mean, like, you know, do, do people really know the difference between a ballista, a manganel, and a trebuchet? Well, Wikipedia does. Right? That's almost as good. Yes, but this is a book. <laughs> right? So, I'm just saying, I love the a lot of the art that's in here. I wish they would have commissioned a little bit of art for yeah. these items. That's yeah, all. I feel you. Uh, 
diseases. Man, this is just not a long enough table of diseases. We're so spoiled by first edition and all the different terrible things that could happen to you. <laughs> this is this is only yes. three horrible diseases. There are more horrible diseases than this in the contagion spell. What are we doing with our lives? <laughs> I mean, they did spend a lot more page space on poisons. Well, fair. But diseases really, really get uh, sh- short-sheeted in, in fifth. They do. I, I, I'm not disagreeing. I think it's a tragedy, but I'm just saying they chose, though, to spend a lot of space on poisons. Well, sure. Poisons are a fast threat and a scary one, and one you can't wipe out with a single lesser restoration spell before it does anything to you. Yeah. Uh, but I, guys, I just really miss fourth edition diseases. I thought they were great. Uh, and, and so moving to diseases that are kind of. Symptoms manifest 1d4 hours after infection. Okay, so they manifest 1d4 fights from now? Good. All right. Oh, get get back to me, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like, then that makes diseases also feel like a gotcha, right? Yep, it really does. Because then it's going to be like, out of the blue, I tell my player, oh, your PC has this symptom now. Yep. I mean, maybe they should have done incremental um, uh, symptoms yeah, for a disease, you know? Yeah. Kind of the way you handle your, your magical tattoo in the Candlekeep adventure, Brandis. Right. And uh, that's that's specifically like what I liked in 4th edition diseases what was that there are multiple steps. I, I was very into that. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should be in that same place. Like it's, its physical presentation on the page was often weird because it took a whole band on the page to display a disease like uh, it was no respecter of a two column page but um this is i don't know i, I don't love these but they had a lot like every book had you oh, know the, yeah. the, the secrets of the open grave had diseases dungeon magazine had diseases the monster manuals had diseases like there were tons of diseases oh yeah it, it was as the bostonians say wicked sick yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the, there are great poisons in here, many terrible poisons, and some of them are super overpowered if your players ever get their hands on them, so that's fun. Uh, purple worm poison, that's a problem. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, giving the, the rogue and especially the assassin a 12d6 poison is um, with, with a DC 19 con save. Wow, folks. Wow. Uh, and they're purchasing and crafting rules for poison. Uh, those are well. For that matter, when you look at Midnight Tears, oh, yeah. right? It it's ninety six with a DC seventeen con save. The thing is, it doesn't strike until midnight, which is why it's called Midnight well, Tears. So they go the whole day and then they're resting. Well, right. And using an ingested poison uh, is a much more social situational thing than uh, mm-hmm. like. I painted my blade with this because I, I might get that guy. These, right. these, these. Is there a rule here for how much poison you actually have? Like the purple worm poison. Using that as an example, like that one, that that one two uh, thousand well, so gold piece. Right. There's the the crafting and harvesting poison uh, section. Yeah. So so one harvesting check gets you one dose. Oh, one uh, dose. Got it. Got it. So I assume that's that's one dose. And let's see. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. So you could sp- you could kill a purple worm. You could sit there for 
God knows how many hours harvesting poison and sell it for two thousand gold pieces. Right, but if you fail, if you fail your check by five or more, you get poisoned yourself as you're trying to extract. I, it. I don't, th- I don't think so, it's a given that you can retry that check on a success or a failure. Oh yeah, it says on a failed check, the character is unable to extract any. Oh poison. yeah. Oh okay, okay. You're right. And now I'm angry because we fought a purple worm last week and I didn't give him the option to harvest the poison. I'm angry at myself for not. <laughs> How dare you not remember this rule on page 258 of the DMG? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, surely. How dare you not know that it was already there? I know, I know. But it still sucks. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, maybe you have the kind of group where a flashback scene is okay and maybe you don't. My players would be fine with it, I assure you, because it's um, yeah, it's two thousand gold pieces they uh, would suddenly be receiving. Oh gosh, you remember we did that thing? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. <laughs> Until they roll the one, and then well, and, and they got inflicted with purple worm poison. Well, oops, mm-hmm. you know, I guess that's their bad. Um, man, I would love to not talk about the next section. We can skip it. I don't use it, so I have no no opinion on it. Yeah, same Um It's madness, and like I don't have anything I feel that I, anyone needs to hear me say about uh, this and mental health. We can keep going. Randis and I have hit this, uh, discussed this topic several times, but I will say, newbie, for you to say you don't use it, but wait until somebody in your party casts divination and fails, mm-hmm. right? Or co- contact other contact other planes. Yeah, and fail. I should say that it hasn't come up in my game yet. I guess should be the right. Yeah, because I, I and so my only point is, even if you don't want to use these, some spells cause some effects cause yes long or short term madness. And so the best thing to do is to have an alternative ready for that. I, I feel like this section would be much better served if they called it stress and not madness, and you could probably finagle it to to be the effects of being stressed and not not mad for lack of a better word and it would solve you know solve a lot of the a lot of the 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 baggage that this section has like the alien rpg has a great stress mechanic and there's nothing wrong with stress i I don't you know there's no negative connotation there you're you're stressed you're stressed um so so now we go into the experience point section on the last page of the chapter. Uh, what's interesting to me about this section is that this actually sort of hooks back into a bunch of stuff that we talk, uh, talked about in um, chapter four with Colin and Rabbit about um, how experience points should be handed out for absent characters, for NPC party members. Uh, that's all here and not in the discussion on NPC party members. Um, And their answer is, count these NPCs as party members when dividing up the XP. They get a full share, and everyone else's XP is reduced accordingly. Yep. And, you know, that's on you for calculating XP that way, I suppose. What what can you do? Um, They they basically, in here, say, there's, there's one kind of good thing they say. They say... You know, if you don't want to penalize someone for not showing up or not being there for whatever reason, so you don't want to penalize them by not giving them XP, just freaking give them the XP. Who cares? Like it, it says, you know, 
few players will intentionally miss out on the fun of a gaming just because they know they'll receive XP for it, even if they don't show up. In other words, people don't show up for other reasons, not because they're just trying to build the party of some XP. Right. I've seen a lot of wasted energy going into make, making sure someone wasn't getting something that they uh, arguably didn't deserve. That said, uh, like my campaign works on enough of a troop style of play that no, you, you don't get XP if you aren't there, but that's okay. We, we, we track XP in my game. And our rule, our rule is we give Mine too. XP to the absent player, um, only because we somebody posted a question once and and we had a hard time answering it, which was, what is the benefit for this person not being, you know, not receiving XP? How does it benefit us as a party? Yeah, and I I, I tended to agree with that. I was like, you know what, that's right. How does it benefit you? Why am I going to penalize a guy who couldn't make it because he had to work? You know? Yeah. Well, see, I mean, the thing is, like, for my, you know, when I run first edition or when I run Castles and Crusades, I track XP. But those games are so different in part because, well, you get XP for gold pieces and treasure, but also because the character classes do not level up at the same amount of XP. But when you move to a system like fifth edition where every character class is on the same progression, it does not benefit the party in any way, shape, or form to penalize that person who whose work schedule changed, yeah. right? And it also doesn't advantage anybody for doing that. Whereas in a game where the different – how much XP a PC has is different to go to different levels, it matters that they didn't get the XP. Um. Right in in my games, if you don't show up in the session, your character doesn't go on the adventure, and right, that's sure. like I've I've got this large number of players with a large number of characters, and mm-hmm. if you didn't show up to the session, I don't even know which character to give the XP to. Right, sure. Well, yeah, and, of course. So there's this huge range of different levels in the party. I'm just saying that you know when when the when the classes don't level at the same rate. Uh, there is no, there's no impetus to keep them all at the same level. So there's no pressure to give the person XP, even if their character didn't show up. Right. Like, you know sure. what I'm saying? Like from the other side of, it's not that you're necessarily penalizing them and that you definitely want to punish somebody. It's just that there's really no reason to give them the XP. It's not like, cause the thing is if in a, in a system where everybody levels at the same time or at the same rate, uh, if somebody gets lags behind because they're, you know, because their their work schedule changed or whatever, or they, you know, they had some kind of family obligation or for several weeks in a row or something like that. Now you have a whole party where every other person is this higher level and this person isn't. Yeah, I mean, whereas in a game with with the different rates, it's very common for like in my Castles and Crusades game, half the party's second level, half the party's first level, and two people are third level. Right. Well, that was a big thing in you know the edition that you don't care about. Uh, in, in third edition, it was very easy to have everyone receive the same XP and still wind up at different levels because some characters were expending it to create magic items and some characters were losing it because they died and got right. uh, kicked down in XP. So like as a relic of that, it, everyone advanced at the same level, uh, at the same rate, just that was still a time 
when uh, you had people all over the place in character level. Yeah, yeah, interesting. It, no, it's not a reason that 5e should do anything differently, uh, but this is a place where we talk about different editions of D&D. That's my only point here. Right, right. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, and, and my point isn't that I think 5th edition is better or worse than the other things I'm talking about. I'm just saying that it doesn't really make sense in 5th edition because of the different structures around sure. that. Yes, it makes sense if you're having troop play. You wouldn't know which character, quote, missed the session, right? Like, that doesn't make sense in troop play. You know, but at the same time, if you had a party with just four PCs and that person, you know, the same person missed a couple of sessions in a row, it might hurt them a great deal, especially if you're playing a published module, to hold them back. Oh, for sure. For sure. Right? And speaking of published modules, most of them have gone to basically assuming everybody's using milestones anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then we get to the milestone section of the page. <laughs> well, because the adventures are also built for a very specific level range. They don't. I mean, they tell you when you get to this chapter, you better be level four. <laughs> yep. Um, and so I'm running Dragon Heist and, uh, you know, really having to engage with, with Milestone XP there. That's definitely a, a bit of a mindset shift for me, though not, you know, a difficult one. It's, it's fine. I, I almost wish, and this is beyond the scope of this conversation, I almost wish that D&D went up to 10th level and skipped levels 11 through 20th and just cooked in everything cool about a character into the first 10 levels. I sort of understand the sentiment, at least I think I do. I don't think I agree with you, um, but that's because I specifically like very long campaigns. Yeah. But I think that there'd be a really interesting thought experiment. Well, that's easy. You just you you level them up much at a much slower pace. You still get a long campaign. They just cap out at level um, ten. That has different problems, like getting the you know emotional payoff of uh, getting a new thing uh, so much more rarely. Yeah. No, there's definitely the issue with the campaign. It's a very valid one. Shadow the Demon Lord face you know uh, grabs that bull by the horns head on and says yes this is meant for short campaigns and that's right. why we do levels one through ten and you're going to get through these campaigns in 11 10 11 12 sessions right and that has been a major thing that's kind of chased me away from even trying to run shadow of the demon lord because yeah. i know what i can get through in a session and it's not enough to be a tenth of a campaign that's me yeah um so the the section finishes uh, with you know a few other forms of level ad- advancement without XP. Uh, I, th- there are rules for non combat challenges. They are very notional here. It says as a starting point, use the rules for building combat encounters in Chapter Three to gauge the difficulty of the challenge. That is not much of an answer, especially when it comes to social encounters. What do you even mean by that? How many social encounters are you talking about going through? What is a deadly one? Like, yeah. I, th- that, that has a denotative meaning, but I'm not sure it matches the connotative meaning. And I, I think the answer to your question is skip that section and go down where it says milestones. 
well and 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 treat them as milestones <laughs> instead so a conversation with a king and convincing a king to do something is a major milestone that you would treat as a hard encounter right and i basically and, agree with that yeah that is what i would do if i handed out xp that way my xp numbers are made up guys i come up with a number that sounds like it'd be satisfying and then i say that out loud and everyone is happy because I have a pretty good sense of what they find satisfying. The one time they didn't find it satisfying, we talked about it, and I changed the number because I was wrong. So I don't have brain space to do a bunch of math of adding up all the encounters that happened at the end of the session. That's not that's not my life. We do a uh, so I run my games through Cobalt Fight Club, um, which gives you your your number, basically your your XP account, and then. Your, your amount, sorry. And then my players keep a very detailed spreadsheet on Google Docs uh, listing every single enemy they fight, the date they fought it, how much XP they got for it, like a very, huh. very detailed <laughs> spreadsheet of their adventuring careers, um, which helps with the XP tracking. Uh, so. That's a really interesting approach that my players would not do. They love that level of granularity. All right. Uh, right. That sheet, if you see that sheet, it, hold, it has multiple tabs because they keep other loot in there, their XP, uh, interesting people they've met. Like it's a whole campaign worksheet that they've created uh, that, that they use. That's awesome. Yeah. So, And that, uh, contrary to all expectation and uh, credible belief, brings us to the end of Chapter 8. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, this chapter is an interesting ride with a lot of weird stops along the way. I think I called it a kitchen sink uh, chapter in the first episode we did. Yeah, I think I, I think you could mm-hmm. refer to as many different parts of a kitchen. The sink, yeah. <laughs> random crap that's still shoved in your freezer from three years ago. You know, whatever. <laughs> the junk drawer. Junk drawer. Yeah. Right. Uh, this is the pots and pans bit. Uh, <laughs> none of these pots fit together. None of them have lids anymore. Whoops. Um, so any any final thoughts on, on it to wrap it up? I think a lot of the things that the DMG might be perceived as missing, they've been including in books such as Tasha's and, and, and um, maybe Xanathar's. Um, so they, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're still building onto what DMs should be. They are, what DMs should know or should should have at their disposal to, to run better games. Uh, the DMG is not a final book, but is one of a few tools available to the DM uh, to improve their games and run their games and, and and understand how to how to do it. Knowing that it's not a rule a guidebook on running games, but more of a toolbox, uh, you know, of of options and 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 solutions. Um, but it's not one that's that's definite. They're still building on it and, and publishing in other places. I, I agree with that. Uh, I I think that uh, if you're going to read one chapter of the DMG uh, all the way through, just read every single word and think about it. Uh, chapter 8 is a really good one to pick um, because it is getting into so many different little options for what this game can be and how it can feel at the table. The session zero stuff in Tasha's, you might want to read that before you read anything else. Well, right? that's pretty fair. I mean, specific to this book. No, no, no. I know, I know. I'm just saying that there's so much stuff that they've published after the fact. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
that should have been in that book, maybe. Yep. Um, Sam and I have floated the idea of uh, you know, continuing the DMG series, maybe after a break to do something else for a bit uh, in uh, Xanathar's and Tasha's DM sections, exactly because there is important stuff there. Well, it just would be interesting to see the evolution of the toolbox, the toolkit that they give you in the DMG, the evolution of that set of tools into what showed up in Xanathar's and then what showed up in Tasha's and just seeing sort of how those are different and or build upon the foundation that's laid in the DMG itself. Uh, It's interesting um, we've tried to hit the highlights of that, you know, and, and point out, okay, well, this is also elaborated upon in whatever book, but, you know, to actually look at the nitty gritty is, it could be instructive. I'm not sure. We'll see. So, okay. Well, with that, I think we are going to call this the end of the episode. So Enrique, where can we find you on the internet? So you can find me on Twitter at NubiDM. You could find my blog, NubiDM.com. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. Just search for NubiDM YouTube. I have uh, some fun stuff there, and um, and I think that's it. I have a Twitch channel that I'm that I'm working on. So lots of places. Lots awesome of places. Awesome. And thank you so much for being here. It was really a nice, nice, uh, nice to have you here. It's been a long time since you and you and I have chatted about D and D for so long. So it's good. It has been. Thank you for inviting me. I really, really, really enjoyed myself on your show. And I'm a fan of the show outside of me being in it this week or whatever. (laughs) I I listened to it. so Thank you very much. It's been great to get to talk to you. Yeah. And Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I also write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandisStoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. And I am Sam, and you can find me at DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can find me at RPGMusings.com on the web, and you can find me on the Tome Show. And I think that's going to take us out of here. Everybody, wear your masks. Oh, please, wear your masks. Get vaccinated if you can. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's leave Delta variants for, you know, Call of Cthulhu games, please. Yes. <laughs>